One and all to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we extend happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee, everything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This, as ever, is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. If you have just found our show, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are excited to have you back. Five decades ago and years before Star Wars, George Lucas went to the top of the charts, the box office charts that is, with American Graffiti, a comedy drama that serves as a memorable coming of age story. Set against the backdrop of the last night of summer vacation in 1962 in Modesto, California, the film follows a group of teenagers and young adults as they share their final evening together before embarking on separate journeys into college and adulthood. The movie boasts an ensemble cast and is renowned for its period piece details, its memorable soundtrack featuring iconic rock and roll tunes, and its exploration of themes related to youth, rebellion, and the inexorable march of time. Riding shotgun with me this month in my little deuce coupe, it's Barna Donovan, film professor at St. Peter's University and author of several books on the cinema, including Conspiracy Films, A Tour of Dark Places in the American Conscious. Barna and I, we're going to go cruising back to the early rock and roll era to explore the movie making, the music, and the messages behind American Graffiti, why this film is deserving of our attention five decades later, and what we can learn from the movie today. First, however, we need to put this picture in proper context. We need to explore when, by whom, why, and how American Graffiti got made, and the reaction it received back in the early 1970s. Here's what we know. Directed by George Lucas and produced by Francis Ford Coppola, American Graffiti was written by Willard Huck, Gloria Katz, and Lucas himself, and features an exceptional ensemble cast of, at that time, mostly unknowns like Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Paul Lamatt, Harrison Ford, Charles Martin Smith, Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, Mackenzie Phillips, Bo Hopkins, and Wolfman Jack. The story unfolds in Modesto, California during 1962 and delves into the cruising and early rock and roll scenes popular among Lucas's generation at the time. Through a collection of vignettes, it chronicles the events of a group of adolescents throughout a single night. The inception of what became American Graffiti occurred during Lucas's formative years in Modesto in the early 60s. Years later, Coppola requested him to craft a coming-of-age tale. Lucas initially faced rejection from various financiers and distributors, but eventually secured Universal Pictures' support after being turned down by other major studios. Filming initially commenced in San Rafael, California, but due to permit issues, the production relocated to Petaluma. Notably, this film marked the debut production under George Lucas's Lucasfilm banner. American Graffiti made its world premiere at the Locarno International Film Festival in Switzerland on August 2, 1973, and hit theaters in the States a week later on August 11. It garnered widespread critical acclaim and multiple Academy Award nominations, including a Best Picture nod, ultimately securing the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. 
The film's triumph played a pivotal role in shaping Lucas's career, providing him with the resources and recognition necessary for the development of a little film called Star Wars, which debuted in 1977. With a modest budget of only $777,000, American Graffiti stands as one of the most financially successful pictures to date, raking in an estimated box office gross and home video sales exceeding $200 million, not accounting for merchandising revenue. American Graffiti continues to earn high marks from critics, scholars, filmmakers, and historians. Case in point, it places number 62 on the American Film Institute's list of the top 100 greatest American movies. On Metacritic, the movie earns a Metascore of 97 out of 100. At Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 97% fresh rating and tallies an average critical score of 8.6 out of 10, as well as an audience rating of 84%. In 1995, the movie was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry, being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Mm-hmm. Got the T-bird waxed? Let's take a spin and revisit the original trailer for American Graffiti. American Graffiti! Where were you in 62? Grab that special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine, cruise downtown, and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti! Baby, what's that? It's a movie! Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Is that you in that beautiful car? Jeez, what a waste of machinery. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. But tonight what did you say? Someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. And I bet you're smart enough to get us some brew. A ballpoint pen, a pint of old Harper. Okay, you got an ID from the liquor? Not until I left it in the car. You'll have to get it before. Oh, well, I I also, I forgot the car. We're finally getting out of this turkey town. You just can't stay 17 forever. You never get tired of going steady with somebody that ain't around. I'm up for grab. Well, that'll be the day. If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. Go to hell. Get your boogaloos out, baby. The wolf man is everywhere. Sixteen candles. You know Toby Juarez? We killed him last night. Excuse me, I think we've had an accident. Well, I won't report you this time, but next time just watch it, will you? I can dig it. It's one of those great old movies about romance, racing, and rock and roll. Oh, American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? Yeah, you know it's coming. 
that time of the show when I must forewarn that me and my guest, we will be dishing out tasty helpings of spoilers fresh from Mel's drive-in in our conversation to follow. So take a cue from Wolfman Jack. If the Wolfman was here, he'd say, get your ass in gear. If American Graffiti remains a blind spot, hey, put our show on Sojourn and go watch this time capsule treasure already. You can even view it for free right now on Tubi TV, so no excuses. All right, now that the gang is all back together, it's time to say hello to an honorary member of the Pharaohs and our reigning sock hop dance champion, Barna Donovan. I'm excited to bring back to our show a guest who joined us two years ago for episode number 38. That's when we commemorated the 50th anniversary of the last picture show. And four years ago, he was with us for episode 12. That marked the 50th birthday of Easy Rider. It's Barna Donovan, film professor at St. Peter's University in Jersey City and author of several books on the cinema, including Blood, Guns, and Testosterone, Action Films, Audiences, and A Thirst for Violence, and Conspiracy Films, A Tour of Dark Places in the American Conscious. He has other books, too, you might want to check out. Hey, Barna, welcome back to Cineversary. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It's always uh, a treat to talk to you and to discuss a great American movie. So we're on a bit of a roll here, this being your third appearance, and we've done some uh, 50th anniversary (laughs) shows with you, so I guess that's the trend. So I'll have to be looking for another golden anniversary coming up down the road where I'm sure your name will uh, come first to mind. (laughs) Thank you. All set for those old... And and, and that's the scary thing, is that I was alive while these uh while these movies were made although very teeny <laughs> tiny child not that old okay yeah yeah you weren't necessarily of age at the time but it's all right we're all getting up there barna but uh <laughs> that's okay we can still appreciate older films even if we were alive when they came out so yeah i want to ask you first can you recall the first time you watched american graffiti and your initial reaction Right. I saw this actually when I was a preteen. So early 1980s. And I watched it because I saw an ad for it on TV. uh, And I was a big fan of the Happy Day show. And Mm. I think probably like a lot of kids, uh, small kids, I must have been maybe like 11, 12, something like that. Of course, thought the Fonz was the coolest thing ever. I was doing a lot of Fonz (laughs) imitations. It's so funny. I I joke with people. Again, there's nothing against Henry Winkler or, or his background or what have you. But He's this rather short Jewish man, nothing wrong with that, but he's supposed to be playing this uh, presumably Italian kind of like street hood, you know, this this greaser uh, who rides a motorcycle. <laughs> I just, you know, I mean, if you really look back behind the curtain, it's interesting casting, right? I always thought that about Henry Winkler, especially as I got older. But yeah, please continue with your uh, thought about the movie. So, so yes, yeah, so I saw an ad for it and I thought where I noticed uh, Ron Howard, who was Richie Cunningham in the TV show, in, in the half mm-hmm. days TV show, I thought, okay, this, yeah. this looks like a, a, a very similar. Uh, so when it's on, let me check this out. And I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed uh, uh, the Happy Day show, and I, I thought that as a preteen, 11, 12 or so, something like that, I thought, hey, if, if that's that's teenage life there later on, high school and getting closer to high, close to college, right. now, this is so much fun. And of course, the world at the time didn't look like American Graffiti or Happy Days anymore. And so I was thinking the 50s must have been such a much, uh, a much cooler or early 60s, like this movie takes place in 62, uh, that it's uh, it was su- such a such more, much more fun and much, uh, much cooler more stylish uh era i 
thought. Uh, I still to this day, like probably a lot of car aficionados, they love just the designs of the cars of the uh, of the fifties, early sixties, right. and mm-hmm. the uh, and the music. So, uh, so, so, so all of that uh, is just uh, just made it look like a very fun movie and a and a fun time. And later, as I rewatched it, as I got older, I I, I got got to uh, to appreciate really what the movie is, and that mm-hmm. it's like a farewell to uh, to the passing of an era. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if I think back now, uh, I remember seeing this film in theaters. Actually, I must have been about age nine. This, I think, was 1978 because that's when they re-released American Graffiti, about five years after its initial debut. And, of course, they were riding the coattails of Star Wars and, and you know George Lucas becoming a household name. So, of course, they re-released it in theaters. And Happy Days was big by that time as well. But the nostalgia and the themes, yeah, they were lost on me at that young age, Barna. But I, I came to, as you did, better appreciate the movie with subsequent rewatches over the years. For me, being a huge fan of 1970s cinema and old-time rock and roll, this film is a standard in my library. It it, it very well could boast the greatest wall-to-wall soundtrack of any motion picture I've ever seen. Every song is a classic that's carefully curated to, you know, in many cases, comment on the action in the scene the song is played. So I really uh, dig revisiting this film, especially musically, and for many of the other reasons we're going to talk about momentarily. So, yeah, let's get into it here. Why is American Graffiti worth celebrating 50 years later now? Uh, For a film so steeped in nostalgia... How can it still be relevant, resonant, or worth revisiting? Mm-hmm, right. Well, it, it's interesting uh, that George Lucas had said that uh, he started thinking of, about his youth uh, when, uh, uh, through through the perspective of an anth- of a former anthropology student in some class, he was studying uh, studying film, of course, in yeah. uh, in college. But he said that when he took uh, courses in anthropology that it made him uh, actually self-reflective about his youth, about his teenage years, and mm. had this idea that at one point, uh, to go and take a look at this uh, a bygone era of the 50s into the uh, into the early 60s and its values and its uh, rituals. Uh, so here you have this fantastic time capsule. I think it's a story told from the point of view of somebody who lived in that era that's, uh, that, that's not there anymore. Uh, So he's able to take us into that. He's able to bring that analytical eye, but also a personal eye to that world of of cruising, the uh, the dating rituals. uh, What are the things that were important to to young people at the time? The car culture. Uh uh, A car uh, aficionado would love watching this uh, movie. Somebody loves the classic uh, 50s, early 60s car designs. And especially how it, it lets us understand you know, how important uh, these artifacts these things were to the uh, to the lives of the young people there and especially the young men uh, that you notice that within uh, not only is almost every scene well the whole movie is all about riding around and cruising in uh, in cars but just the different types of cars and the concerns over what kinds of cars young men drive how important it is to them how it defines them uh, it, it's it's a, it's a reflection of their values, a reflection of their longings. Like if you have a, you had a, a character like a, like Terry the Toad who doesn't have a car, and then that's creating uh, problems for him. So uh, it, it's 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 a look at this uh, um, at a culture. It's uh, it's a value system 
so uh, accurately coming from somebody who lived it, but somebody who's also able to uh, put his anthropologist mm -hmm. uh, hat on and and examine it. This is a time that's gone, but how it uh, how it played out. Um, I also uh, would say that it lets us understand the uh, nostalgic romantic power of that time and also this is this is so fascinating that this movie comes out in 1973 mm -hmm. right it's set in 1962 so it's just 11 years uh, removed from the uh from the time it's supposed to be uh supposed to be set in um but uh how much the, the world, the culture had changed, but then suddenly how nostalgic America gets for it, because otherwise the film wouldn't have been as successful, uh, that here's a time in 1963 where maybe uh, those, uh, maybe the generation who would have been uh, that old in 62, maybe they might have been the ones who also then would rebel against the uh, um, against the, the old world, the, uh, the post-war, the 50s world, but then suddenly by by 73, there's still this pull of the of, of, of nostalgia to go back and relive the uh, uh the good parts, the fun parts of it. So it's kind of I would say it's it's a a glimpse into both the post-war era and then also the 1970s. That how after the country goes through a period of countercultural upheaval. Then how it suddenly wants to uh, wants to be wants this feeling of nostalgia to go back and revisit the old world that's uh, that's gone, and uh, probably a third point that uh, that I would uh, add to this, and uh, to go and uh, uh, compare it to the way that young people today are experiencing, or maybe all of us now are experiencing shared uh, cultural uh, events or, or cultural experiences or how we are not experiencing it. That a fascinating part of this uh, of this film, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this uh, later in a little bit, uh, the the music and the radio mm. uh, that they're, they're listening to and the Wolfman uh, Jack character, who's not a character, not entirely a character, is a real person. Uh, but everybody is listening to the same songs right. uh, throughout the uh, throughout the whole film and they're coming out of the radios in their cars they're all listening to the announcements by by wolfman jack and it's this fascinating look at a world where through uh media products like this or the radio or or you know people who say that they remember a time when they there were only three tv networks that we all saw and all heard the same thing that we felt like it's a um it's a much more much much closer much more interconnected culture than we have today. I mean, today, nobody, how many people are at any given time listening to the same music on the radio? Young kids today, they're not even listening to the radio. They're, it's so uh, personalized. The technology that we have now is so personalized that um, I'm wondering if young people now would be watching this, if they're, they're thinking, wouldn't it be great if it's not just me, myself, and I, and my phone, and my, 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 li my uh, list of music, but if I had a stronger connection like i knew that right now this is the song that all the other kids are listening to uh -huh. so so maybe in, in a way this is a uh it, it brings this extra added value to this film that george lucas was not even imagining at the time uh when he made this that maybe one time we will uh, come to a place where you don't have the uh, the shared cultural experience at all wow great thoughts great way to kick off the conversation here and and much food for thought because 
you really introduce a lot of different uh, concepts and ideas behind, I think, what makes this film great. So I'm just going to expound on some of my own ideas here and yours as well. I believe that American Graffiti is deserving of, you know, 50th birthday plaudits, this commemoration five decades onward for several reasons, right? Not the least of which it's just an incredibly fun and entertaining work that balances uh, you know, comedy, romance, light thrills with with what? With more serious underlying themes, like, for example, the uneasy transition into adulthood, right? The ambition versus comfort and complacency kind of a, a message, fear of obsolescence, uh, and, and more. You know, evergreen messages that can transcend generations, Barna. Mm-hmm. And long before the first Star Wars film, which completely turned everything upside down, this is a movie that proved George Lucas has real talent. Maybe not so much as a director than maybe a, a storyteller with big ideas and a knack for innovating narratively and technologically, as he and his collaborators, like, for example, Walt, the great Walter Murch, demonstrate in American Graffiti with, uh, you know, its groundbreaking sound design, the cross-cutting between four main characters, a lot of these things w- which were considered controversial at the time. And then you think, Barna, about how American Graffiti is is one of the most influential films ever made, especially when you consider that soundtrack, the heavily copied story template, and the way it helped fuel, as you were talking about, the 1950s nostalgia craze in the 1970s, which is an absolutely fascinating phenomenon, inaugurating a whole new era where you have displaced nostalgia for, for something, you know, a generation earlier in pop culture, where you really didn't have much of that before American Graffiti, I would argue. And then for a movie that depicts adolescence on the cusp of adulthood, it's also that rare coming-of-age picture that isn't heavily focused on teen rebellion or overtly critical of the establishment of or older generations, right? It's not, it's not trying to be a rebel without a cause. This is primarily about kids having fun while also having to, you know, sometimes face difficult choices. But there are no serious conflicts in American Graffiti, no existential crises. I get that Kurt has to make a decision by the time the morning comes around. I get that you know Ron Howard and Cindy Williams break up, get back together, and they've got to make some tough choices. But you know, no one dies, no one gets arrested, no one protests authority, no one delivers a teenage angst sermon, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think about how American graffiti is also worthy of admiration and respect because even 50 years later, It serves as that rare example of a little film that became a huge cultural phenomenon on the strength of the fine script, the excellent casting, the stellar acting, great music, and and just zeitgeist luck, good timing in terms of capitalizing on on, on, uh, something popular here. It's one of the most profitable motion pictures ever made, I was reading, considering its meager initial budget. Which reminds us that unlimited financial resources certainly doesn't guarantee a work of lasting quality. In our current era of Hollywood bloat, Mm -hmm. where what dominates? Well, sequels, remakes, superhero movies, films tied to products and brands, they're yielding diminishing box office returns as well. In this day and age, it's refreshing to remember that some of the best movies ever made were small productions, lovingly crafted by talented mavericks and visionary filmmakers. This is part of what I love the 70s about so much. And just getting back quickly to that thespian troupe, the actors, it's incredible, Barna, to think that so many of these actors were relative unknowns back in 1973, right? Like American Graffiti catapults the careers of Harrison Ford. He's a small player here, but I mean, he's memorable. 
Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Cindy Williams, Charles Martin Smith, uh, even Mackenzie Phillips, Paul Lamatt, mm-hmm. Candy Clark, Kathleen Quinlan, they're all get kind of getting their start here or being put on the map, even if it wasn't exactly their first picture. This is the one that people remember them for first off. And this is one of the most impressive young casts ever assembled, bar none. Mm-hmm. Sure. It also remains highly revered, critically acclaimed. It places number 62 on the AFI's top 100 list. It garners a 97% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and on Metacritic. So I think the proof is in the pudding. And yeah, some things are dated. Some things have changed majorly. Maybe we're uh, we're not as nostalgic in the way we were in the 70s, about the 50s or the early mm-hmm. 60s. But I think it can still speak to us, not just ones who saw it in its original run, but new generations if they're open-minded to mm-hmm. it. Like you said, putting that hypothetical about today's younger generation with all the trappings and the technology and the phones and you know social media and everything else. I wonder to what extent, if, if they can see this movie, they would be moved and, and just think about how things have changed so radically. Right. I, I, that, that's what I was wondering about. Every time I'm watching this and I'm watching uh, kids uh, today, that don't don't you ever want to hang out with your friends in real life more than sit and push buttons on your on your phone? That there is a connection, but it's a very different different type of connection. And 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 then today that you can personalize it so much that this uh, sort of an atmosphere where we are all experiences the same thing at once as we as they did in mm-hmm. the past before the social media is gone now right and that begs the question i'm very curious i know you are a film professor Uh, do you uh ever show and teach this film to students in which case uh, there's a good litmus test of uh, how is this film being received by younger viewers i showed it a couple of times sometimes we discussed it uh, in in uh, other couple of uh, introductory uh, level uh, of film classes and uh, the, the the music always makes uh, makes an impression and the cars they said the cars looked uh, looked so cool <laughs> now, sure, sure i'm going to be i'm going to be uh, um directing them more towards the idea that pay attention closely to how everybody is listening to the same dj how many times do you think you experience that and 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 just uh the the whole situation uh oh and they, they find that odd that um when the kids are going out to do the dating guys look pick up girls that they they would do it in cars i mean sometimes they would say things like wouldn't that be a little, little, little dangerous weren't there any fender fenders <laughs> well, that's a good point that's interesting yeah, I mean, these are logical thoughts, and that's a good sign of, of intelligence, of course, you know, rational thought. But but also, like, are they paying attention for the right reasons, as you were saying? Like, if they're focused too much on the cars and maybe the situations, maybe they're losing sight, uh, some of them anyway, of, of the relationships and mm-hmm. just the fact that it's a more communal kind of a mm-hmm. you know subculture that, okay, maybe it doesn't apply to your life today as much as it would have in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. But maybe it can kind of shed light on how society has changed so much and Mm -hmm. perhaps how we should be valuing um, simpler things to some extent and and going back a a little bit in terms of not so much an over-reliance on on just technology Mm -hmm. at the expense of human relationships. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about how American Graffiti might have been innovative, influential, or for that matter, the first of its kind. So, for example, if we can kick it off with a, a discussion about the music, right? Let's let's talk a bit about this soundtrack because it's a huge 
factor. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that it, from 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 beginning to uh, to end, that it doesn't have an orchestral background, and uh, mm -hmm. this is all about the uh, the songs of, of 1962. But right, there's no proper score written for American Graffiti. Lucas wisely chose to select, curate uh, personally, music from his youth, and uh, you know, going through his 45 collection and figuring out which song perfectly matched to a particular character or scene. Right, it's a pioneering approach to music because using pop tunes in Hollywood films wasn't so common back then. There were previous works that had done it, like, for example, The Graduate or uh, Easy Rider come to right. mind. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but perhaps taking a cue from a contemporary like Peter Bogdanovich in his last picture show, like that movie, Graffiti is that rare film that used popular period songs as what's called diegetic music. Now, that means... Mm -hmm. It's it's music that's heard by the characters in their world as well as by us, right? So they're, they're listening to it on their car stereos or at the you know local drive-in or what have you. And so again, no traditional score, no original music written for the film. And the results, I believe, are just spectacular because those early rock and roll tunes are perfectly chosen to accurately represent the late 50s and early 60s. And they... They serve as a Greek chorus of sorts. You know, their lyrics, as you oh. said, they're often used to comment on the mood or the action or, or the character in that given scene. And also, this is one of the first soundtracks that became a blockbuster-selling album, a trend that would continue mm -hmm. later in the decade with, of course, Saturday Night Fever and Grease and some others. The music becomes a character unto itself in the film, and again, this is no small point. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that and 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 what you mentioned about the uh, the diegetic sound that you can just admire the uh, uh, the craft of this film so uh, so much and the uh, and and the, the music uh, direction and that it's not uh, coming in in the background it's the uh, it's within the scene uh, that we hear what they hear so you you, you hear it sometimes further away when when you have some of the dialogue uh, scenes where uh, you have the characters talking back and forth between two cars uh, so sometimes the music's louder sometimes it's softer or when you need an important important uh, uh, emotional song uh, like when Laurie and uh, uh, and Steve are dancing when after he, he he told her that maybe they should start seeing others so she's getting uh getting getting sad about that uh and they're dancing and and you see you hear the uh, the song that matches the mood I, I believe what was it the smoke gets in your eyes if I remember that's correctly. right so you're talking specifically about the, the sound design by Walter Murch, which kind of moves the goalposts oh, yeah. by demonstrating that you could make the music and audio effects sound three-dimensional, sound realistic within the universe that the characters inhabit. Murch called this effect worldizing. And from what I read, it involved not only you know creative editing, but also blending a song's original recording with a re-recorded take of that song played and then recorded in a space where a character might hear it. So... For example, within the school gymnasium, when they're when they're uh, performing the hop, from what I understand, they're recording that, but then they're replaying it and re-recording that recording <laughs> to get an even more interesting spatial dimension to the sound of the song. Merch, he adds this oral directionality, echo, acoustic depth of field, and other effects to the sounds in the songs. And that allows us, for example, to hear what it might sound like in a passing car that's playing that music, as you said. <laughs> the oral aesthetics in this film likely inspired other innovative sound designs. If you just jump from A to B to C, you think about the conversation 
you know, the next year by Coppola mm-hmm. or Nashville a year after that or Apocalypse Now and, and other films of the 70s and beyond. I'm going to quote Lucas briefly here, who said, I used the absence of music as well as sound effects to create the drama, which uh, is so interesting because uh, most directors, filmmakers will use a proper score for a film to create the drama, to kind of inform us how to feel. But he uses the absence of songs coupled with the use of sound effects to amplify the tension or the drama. And and like you said, that suddenly... Um, you have other films afterwards going and taking a cue from this. And once this had, had, had set the bar uh, that other uh, filmmakers and other genres, uh, they have to go and, and, and step up to the uh, uh, step up to this. Uh, so so how it's how it's influential music wise. I think it's it's it's, it's very important that they took the time uh, to uh, uh, to create its sound design as, as well as they did, because if you're making a film about the teenage experience, you know, especially in that time, music is so important to the to to teenagers. It's it's going to be a a, a tool for them to express their identities. You know, it's going to be a tool for them to uh, to put themselves in the proper mindset when you're sad. Uh, you listen to the, listen to the music, and and plus for that particular generation uh, who were listening to rock and roll for the first time, it was especially a very strong tool uh, for personal identity for for for, for rebellion. Sure. Now, that you listen to uh, to Elvis or the uh, the other songs that made your parents nervous, so it was just so so important for uh, for 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 kids at that time. Uh, so that uh, this is really uh, admirable uh, that George Lucas would uh, go and bring uh, such a such a perfect focus uh, to uh, to making to making the music um, and presenting it in such a groundbreaking way. Yeah, great point. Again, uh, and speaking of Elvis, if you're curious, like they cover all the great artists of that era on the soundtrack, but where the heck is Elvis? Well, from what I learned, they couldn't afford the rights to the music, so they had to share the wealth among a lot of other, other artists and publishing companies, and, and I, I still think the soundtrack is great. It's too bad that they don't have one or two Elvis tunes on it, though. Mm-hmm, sure. What are you going to do? Okay. <laughs> uh, but getting back to the innovative or influential nature of American graffiti, you think about the postscript. Now, that's the text epilogue that informs us what happens to one or more of the characters in the film at the end. That's It's a very memorable postscript. Maybe the most famous or memorable postscript in movie history, at least up to that time. We learn the fates of Kurt, of Steve, of Terry and John, two of whom will die soon or... You know, missing in action is Terry, presumed dead, probably, and only one of whom escapes his hometown for a presumably bigger and better life. Now, famous postscripts were used previously in movies. You think of, uh, for example, A Man for All Seasons, Army of Shadows, and some others. But perhaps American Graffiti's decision to use a postscript epilogue inspired later postscripts. Barry Lyndon has a, an interesting postscript at the end. All the President's Men has a very famous postscript of Nixon resigns, right, on a, on a typewriter. Animal House, also set in 1962, by the way, has a, a funny postscript and, and several other later films. So it's a small point, but again, what a daring way to end the story. The, the postscript was fantastic because uh, without it, I think part of the meaning of the uh, story would be lost. Uh, I agree. 
that this is not just a, a film about uh, teenagers having fun in a more innocent time, but how that time is coming to an end. And uh, once the, in 1962, uh, next year, there's going to be the uh, the Kennedy assassination, you know, uh, the buildup uh, of Vietnam during the during the decade. So you will have a lot of lot of turbulent things uh, coming along. And so this is a slight hint. And I think it's uh it's very good that it's only the postscript that you don't have a uh, much more heavy-handed foreshadowing uh, during the uh, during the film and that yeah, lets agreed. the characters have fun and uh, ponder just that 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 universal concern of well I'm about to grow up I'm moving from childhood into young adulthood uh the concerns of that but then you're going these these people are going to have much much bigger concerns a few years down the road uh because not only is their childhood over but the uh, the childhood in the sense of the country is is also uh, is also over. So it foreshadows it, but it it does it subtly enough. So the uh, the uh, the balance uh, between the two, I think, is perfect. Yeah, you're totally right. It's such a relevant postscript. I want to get into that a little bit later when we talk about themes too. But totally agree with what you said. I mean, the popularity of American Graffiti, of course, was a strong catalyst for the 1950s revival trend that caught fire in the in the 1970s. And because in the wake of American Graffiti, you get Happy Days launched on TV. A couple of years later, it's Laverne and Shirley, also kind of within that same universe and era. And this band had been around before American Graffiti, but it, they had they had their 15 minutes or more. They were called Sha Na Na, and they also got the green light for a TV show after American Graffiti. And there were several other films depicting this era that were released following Graffiti, including The Lords of Flatbush, Cooley High, American Hot Wax, The Buddy Holly Story, and of course the box office smash that was Grease in 1978. You think about Wolfman Jack. Now, he was a DJ synonymous with the early rock and roll era. He enjoyed a career boost uh, from the film. Later, other films set during a similar late 50s, early 60s period also proved popular. And they include Diner, Stand By Me, Back to the Future, and Dirty Dancing. So I'm not saying that every one of these was a direct descendant of American Graffiti and they wouldn't have existed without it. But it's just interesting to trace that lineage and see that there's some there there. Oh, sure, sure. Especially I love uh, Lords of Flatbush. Uh, not only is it the one, I think, I believe it's the last pre-Rocky film Sylvester Stallone did, um, but Henry Winkler is in it in a leather <laughs> jacket and on a motorcycle looking the way he's going to look as the, uh, as the Fonz. Oh, yeah. So, so you have this. Yeah. this <laughs> Six degrees of separation there, brother. And, you know, put more succinctly from what I was talking about, American Graffiti kicks off this nostalgia craze in general, uh, you know, this trend that continued in subsequent decades. Mm -hmm. Films like, for example, Forrest Gump come to mind or That Thing You Do, uh, Dazed and Confused, which is it just seems like it's the direct offspring of a film like American Graffiti only uh, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Licorice Pizza more recently, and even Lady Bird as well as TV series like That 70s Show and The Goldbergs, Mm -hmm. they all likely owe a little debt to American Graffiti because Graffiti proves that audiences long to revisit bygone times from their younger years, or they yearn to be immersed in an interesting cultural era that may seem simpler, safer, more enjoyable than our modern stressful times. Mm, I want to share with you, this uh, this is a little bit of an essay written by Daniel Allen from Little White Lies. 
Here, nostalgia is a force explicitly deployed by Lucas, gazing back toward a specific period and the music, fashion, movies, and events that came from it. These tap into the fond memories and positive associations of those in the audience who lived through the era, using the viewer's sentimental affection to bolster the film's emotional impact. Nostalgia is such a potent tool because it is a form of escapism from aging or the bleak present. If you're suddenly feeling rather old or unsettled by the modern world, why not watch a movie that captures your teenage years? It helps that the 1950s saw the arrival of popular culture as we know it, shaped by the youth and defined by film, television, celebrity, and music. The baby boomers were the first generation to benefit and American Graffiti became the first film to capitalize on their affection for their teenage years, unquote. Well, absolutely. That This makes uh, nostalgia a, a, a marketable commodity. And, and we're, we're noticing later that other generations are also going to have their nostalgia for for their youth, like when you have something like that '70s show, where people who were who were young at that time, or or uh, you know Generation X uh, enjoys watching Stranger Things on on Netflix, yeah, like, uh, to feel the nostalgia for the uh, for the '80s, and that it's just something that um, subsequent generations realize, hey, this is this is fun. I like to uh, um, I like to relive. Um, what I would like to think is, a, is an easier and happier time in my life. Completely, yeah. The movie also contributes to what I call a, a subgenre of one crazy night, in which the events occur over a single day or a single evening. So after American Graffiti, uh, some similar one crazy night narratives, Barna, Porky's. Okay, not a great movie, but it's still within that subgenre. Uh, after Hours by Scorsese is a decent example. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Dazed and Confused, which we talked about, Can't Hardly Wait, uh, Superbad, Project X, Book Smart. These are all one crazy night films picking up from where American Graffiti left off, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I did a little digging and I wouldn't have thought of, of these things, but it makes sense having seen all of these. But American Graffiti was inspired by uh, Federico Fellini's I Vitaloni. And it's drawn comparison to other works like Fellini's Eight and a Half. Now, uh, Eight and a Half also has a beautiful angelic muse character in the form of Claudia Cardinal. And you think about The Last Picture Show, which is another period drama with characters stuck in a dead-end town. And even The Wizard of Oz, which, like this film, features a magical kind of man behind the curtain, right? So you could see some of the earlier influences, perhaps, on Lucas. And I, I can see, especially the one crazy night uh, subgenre, that uh, um, I can see its its effectiveness. I, I never never looked at it really closely, you know, before that. That that what is what what's what's so effective about this? And it, it really is uh, the situation that. Um, you're suddenly tested in one moment hmm. uh, where your your values or what you see uh, about yourself or how you would like to think of yourself is suddenly uh, put to test under under some kind of uh, uh, some some complications. Right. And oftentimes you're going to have comedic uh, com- complications, but you have the uh, you have the uh, the serious undertone, and uh, that here you're going to have uh, characters who need to learn you know who they really are. I want to talk a little bit about how American Graffiti was such a strong reflection of Lucas himself, what talents he brought to the film to make it distinctive. Is it hard to believe, Barna, that the man responsible for Star Wars and, you know, THX 1138 created a period piece, coming-of-age dramedy, as they call it? This seems like such an anomaly in his filmography, right? 
I would argue that it's not hard to believe that the person who did Star Wars did this, but it's it's very hard to believe that somebody who did THX eleven thirty eight uh, did this. And so, so I, I think it's it's worth looking at that a little bit because I think um, what this film is is another another really important uh, um, uh, cultural ripple effect is going to have. It's 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 buried in its relationship to THX 1138 before and then Star Wars afterwards. You know, so just for a little background of where George, George Lucas was coming from that while he was a film student at USC, he was already uh, making waves on the film scene for winning a number of awards uh, for his uh, for student films. You know, so he was like the, he was like the big man on campus in the film school there. And really the hallmark of a George Lucas film was it was really avant-garde. It was I mean, very much in the spirit of counterculture, going throw out all the rules, everything that's been done before, Toss them out. Make your own rules. Completely challenge all conventions. And mm. so that, and at one point he got a, I got an internship at Warner Brothers where he hit it off with Francis Ford Coppola, and then Coppola had had his own iconoclastic streak. That's why he liked to uh, uh, set up his uh, company, American Zoetrope, up in San Francisco, so right, he could keep right. some distance from the uh, from the studio. So the two of them hit it off, and eventually uh, through uh, through Coppola, he got THX made. And THX, I would challenge anybody who listens to this who, who hasn't seen it yet, uh, go and watch it. And I wonder if you would want to turn around and rewatch it again, uh, because <laughs> that is very much like film school, George Lucas. Uh, it is a difficult watch. It's a confusing film. It's this very pessimistic, uh, Huxley-esque future dystopia, uh, where you have people who are forced to take uh, drugs so they so their um, emotions are muted and how they're mm -hmm. controlled by this, this this autocratic society. So a really, really downbeat film. And, and I think a very confusing movie. It's very much a, it's a think movie. You have to listen to its very code-like, weird, futuristic dialogue uh, to understand what's going on, which up to a point, I mean, I can I can kind of uh, appreciate that it's making the audience work for it to understand what's going on. But ultimately, when uh, when Warner Brothers looked at the cut, uh, they were shocked. Uh, they were angry at Coppola. And they said, why'd you bring this guy here? This is horrible. <laughs> this does not have any kind of a, uh, any kind of a mainstream appeal. So they dumped the film out with any yeah. kind of uh, uh, any sort of of, uh, sort of marketing and it died now mm. i would argue that warner brothers was right and uh, that if they would have even put the biggest pile of money they ever spent on marketing that movie would not have found a mainstream audience and a big reason and the interesting thing was that even george lucas's wife uh said that look george uh, this is this this movie doesn't make me feel anything uh, i want to feel joy or love or fear or excitement thx is it's it's very sterile and then coppola tells them that okay george you need to make more of a more of a feel movie yeah. and so this is going to be his sudden pivot uh where thx was all about thinking uh this is about feeling and also feeling good yeah and it's also that the, the motto write what you know now he's sure. one of the co-writers of the american graffiti screenplay but he's of course you know the originator of the basic story mm -hmm. and write what you know means you know he kind of lived this lifestyle right. so it makes sense that if he's going to follow coppola's advice and go back and make a more personal movie 
that evokes, you know, real world emotions, what better canvas to explore than than something you lived yourself? Right. The primary emotions this evokes is it makes you feel good. It's nostalgic. Uh, it's a really this, this positive feel-good film. And then Star Wars is going to be the same thing, that there's going to be nostalgia in a way in Star Wars. It's really this homage to the old uh, uh, 30s, 40s cliffhanger films, the uh, the old uh, war films. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're going with that, because when you first brought up the similarities, I was struggling to think of the through line between American Graffiti and Star Wars, but that absolutely makes sense, because if you know anything about the making of of Star Wars and, and, you know, his ideas for it. He's, of course, inspired by, like, old Buck Rogers serials and Westerns and samurai movies and uh, just a booyah base of pop culture from his childhood and upbringing, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. And ultimately, it's also a feel-good film. The good guys win. Uh, It's it's very clear-cut. You know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. Uh, The the heroes are able to uh, to, to defeat, or at least up to a point with the first one, and defeat the uh, the evil empire. The ultimate villain is all in black. Black the uh, uh, the uh, the heroes like like Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, they're good. They're wearing white, so it's it's a very um, very nostalgic, very you're you're coming out feeling good uh, from a uh, from from a Star Wars film. That yes, you know, good can triumph, and oh yeah, maybe people maybe even in the seventies, uh, people who would have been familiar uh, with the uh, uh, with the cliffhangers of old uh, would have appreciated that uh, that nostalgia. So that, that that's where I can I, I would make the argument for that connection between mm-hmm. uh, graffiti and Star Wars. Yeah, it makes sense. Just to kind of dig a little deeper into Lucas's background, I mean, he infused his upbringing, his memories of cruising culture into the American graffiti story and into the personalities as well, the characters. He sets the tale within his hometown of Modesto. He writes three characters who personified the young Lucas at different points of his own adolescence, his his own young adult life, because Terry serves as the kind of nerdy high school version of Lucas. And John is, is Lucas as a hot rod driving junior college student. And Kurt is embodying the ambitious Lucas who needs to escape his hometown to fulfill his creative dreams. So I'm going to quote Lucas again here, who said that it all happened to me, but I sort of glamorized it. I spent four years of my life cruising the main street of my hometown, Modesto, California. I went through all that stuff, drove the cars, bought liquor, chased girls, a very American experience. I started out as Terry the Toad. But then I went on to be John Milner, the local drag race champion. And then I became Kurt Henderson, the intellectual who goes to college. They were all composite characters based on my life and on the lives of friends of mine. Some were killed in Vietnam and quite a number were killed in auto accidents. So that postscript really resonates all the more when you you learn more about the experiences that stuck with Lucas and some of the people close to him. Mm-hmm, right. And then working with a small budget, you know, on a tight 27-day schedule that I learned, Lucas had to improvise some of the filmmaking. He encourages his cast to ad-lib some of their lines and movements. Mm-hmm. And, and he often chooses things like mistakes and flubs and happy accidents in his final cut. From what I learned, he rigged a two-camera system where you have a scene with two adjacent cars where they're talking to each other out of the windows and that allows him and his filmmakers to capture cross-cut shots between the two drivers, for example. It's not like he reinvents the wheel here, but he finds creative ways to get around technical, practical problems of, I've got a very small budget, very tight shoot window. How the heck am I going to capture the cross-cutting, the 
you know, shot reverse shot kind of problem with moving cars. <laughs> this is a serious problem long before CGI and things like that. So that, that that's pretty inventive. And, and he employs technoscope cameras to lend the film a 16 millimeter appearance. And that gives it a bit more of a documentary look because he wanted the film to almost appear as a documentary of sorts. He also throws in a lot of meta nods, right, to to creations by him and, and his friend, producer Francis Ford Coppola. You recall the license plate on John's hot rod. It's uh, THX, I think it's 38 instead of 1138. And then Dementia 13, is Co- which is Coppola's first film. Well, that's the movie on the theater marquee. So there, there's little meta nods uh, throughout uh, a graffiti. Not a lot, but just enough where it rewards repeat viewings, too. Sure, sure. And, and th- those are going to be the things that in the future, uh, fanboys or fangirls even of all kinds of things, say like the Star Wars films or not a gigantic Star Wars universe, they enjoy things like that, looking for little Easter eggs, little nods to things that have uh, that have gone before. So that's uh, that's very clever for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the film aficionado to go back and then go and look for those things. Absolutely. Little Easter eggs you can kind of hunt for. Quentin Tarantino was particularly enamored of Lucas's directorial choices. He said this, Lucas invokes the candy-colored pop ephemera of the 50s in his visual scheme. The green hues of the fluorescent bulbs that light the liquor stores, hamburger stands, and pinball arcades that the characters loiter around. The bright colors of the jukeboxes, diner neon signs, and the candy apple red and canary yellow of the hot rods that cruise up and down the main drag. Lucas poignantly parades all this in front of us with the added knowledge that all this glorious chrome and paint and pomade is about to go out of style and be replaced by space-age 60s chic. That's a great quote there from Mr. Tarantino. So are there any elements of American graffiti, Barna, that hold up better than expected half a century later, or or maybe some aspects that are problematically dated in 2023? Now, in all fairness, when you're looking at a 50-year-old film, you're going to have some creakiness. We get it, right? And, And times have changed dramatically. We're in a whole different culture today much more PC where, you know, you, you got to be careful about things and you don't want to offend people. And I'm not coming down on one side or the other of that. All I'm saying is that it's easy to find faults in older movies. That being said, is there anything that really stands out to you? I would say something that he, he leaves out uh, that when he, uh, uh, when, when on the end we have the, uh, uh, the postscript with the uh, a suggestion that things are going to be getting much more tur- turbulent in the coming decade, course it's it's one of them is vietnam but that's not the only one uh that the civil rights movement will be another one and then the uh, the feminist movement you know so it's somehow if he could have nodded a little bit to uh to those things as well I, maybe there's one line I, I can certainly think of uh when carol is in the car with uh, uh with john and they're listening to wolfman jack and she says that her mother doesn't uh let her listen to his show in the house because she thinks that he's black yeah, so so there you have that little suggestion that okay maybe not 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 all is perfect in this innocent looking uh, looking world. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that that uh, you have this 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 undertow of uh, of racism there, and we don't see any uh, any black people in the right. film or. 
feminism is going to be uh, the, uh, the, the the women's movement in the in the coming years that will be one of those uh, those major changing forces for the culture maybe you know there if he would have had one character say a couple of lines about uh, maybe one of the girls about how you know she's unsure about her future what's expected of her so so that's some some slight foreshadowing I mean nothing nothing heavy-handed uh, okay. could hit you over the head but mm-hmm. but something to suggest Suggest that there are a number of things that uh, that are not all right uh, all, as they should be with this world. Yeah, fair points. I mean, it's probably arguably more sins of omission, uh, things that that maybe he could have put in as uh, as opposed to left out. But to each his own. I mean, there are going to be be people who find fault with any vintage work that doesn't necessarily conform to today's standards and norms and and expectations and things like that. But I would argue that American Graffiti holds up pretty well. I don't think there's anything that that really besmirches the filmmaking or a lot of the choices. It's a not necessarily accurate reflection, as you said, of the early 60s or the early rock and roll era. You know, they kind of gloss over a lot of the real world problems that I'm sure minorities encountered and women. But as far as a, you know, one crazy night subgenre kind of movie where you're having a lot of fun Mm -hmm. and you're looking at things through some slightly rose colored glasses, it's relatively harmless. Nobody's majorly offended here, I would argue. And for a film that's 50 years old, I think it acquits itself pretty nicely. Mm-hmm, sure, and, and I think even when it uh, when it showed up on TV in the uh, well, I when I saw it in the eighties on TV, I don't remember anything being edited out uh, that that would be objectionable uh, at that point. Nothing raunchy, you know, yeah. vulgar language, and nudity, anything like that. Sure, yeah. Every once in a while, you hear about they'll edit out things from older movies, like for example, uh, most recently, uh, if you want to get. Or rather, if you want to watch or I think even stream William Friedkin's The French Connection, they take out some of Popeye Doyle's colorful remarks, let's put it that way, Um, which I'm not a fan of censorship personally, so I have a problem with that. I I think you should let a work stand unto itself and be a reflection of its times. Hopefully that won't be the case with American Graffiti in future iterations, whether it's streaming, home video or whatnot. They'll let the work just kind of speak for itself, warts and all. Oh, sure. I I completely agree. Absolutely. So what themes, messages, and subtexts can be mined from American Graffiti? Let's get into some of the thematic elements of this work that make it a cut above well, I think the uh, uh, the major one we 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 touched on slightly before is the uh, the coming of age. Uh, that when you're going and 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 facing a major uh, major turning point um, in your life, that you are no longer a child. Uh, now you're moving into into young adulthood. Uh, that uh, you're leaving behind. You're getting uh, some some more uh, uh, freedoms now, but now you're gonna you're going to have uh, more responsibilities. Sure. And that we we see how these uh, how these characters are looking forward. To it, how they're planning on it, what they're uh, what they're they're nervous about. Uh, that first we see Steve who can't wait to uh, to go off to uh, to the big world, go off into uh, go off to college, and then later because of his uh, his his relationship with Lori, he winds up staying. You have Kurt who's nervous about the next step, mm. and does he 
want to leave this uh, this small town. And he's, he's feeling safe here, but at the same time, his eyes are going to be opening up during during the uh, uh, during the film. But this uh, this place and these people are not really uh, for him much longer. Now that he's going to be a grown up. And, and the interesting thing was, uh, uh, and then you see uh, see characters who um, who might uh, be uh, resisting uh, maturity or growing up uh, even more because remember there was uh, one of the early uh, early lines in the film when uh, uh, when Steve and uh, and Kurt are talking at the diner uh-huh. and then Kurt says that he's uh, reluctant uh, to leave and he's thinking oh maybe I should wait wait another year and then Steve says you can't stay 17 forever right and then you see a shot of John Milner with his yellow almost like toy-like car uh, and he's a couple of years older than uh, than they are and you're getting the sense that he is someone who is holding on you know to that uh, to the childhood a little too, little too long uh, his, his grip is a little too strong and then uh, you're going to have I think almost like fate uh, going in and sending him signals uh, during the uh, during the film that you know you need to evolve uh, you need to uh, you need to grow up like when he goes out cruising and he uh, winds up with a 12 year old girl in the car for the uh, for the entire uh, entire night and that's really sending the message home uh, that this this you might need to uh, evolve into uh, into something else and then all the way down to the to the end which i i was always uh, interested uh, i was always fascinated by that when, when even when we see him for the very last time at the um, um at the airport that he's still you know looking like he's he's he's, he's playing the cool guy and uh, that he might be someone who's uh who's who's, who's holding on to uh, uh to the youth to the childhood um a little longer than he should so that coming of age is coming along a little, little more slowly with him and then most a couple of uh, seconds later we find out that he's uh he, he's definitely the one who dies from the uh, uh from the group so yeah it's sad and th- these kinds of uh, uh kinds of challenges but excitements promises about uh, about coming major turning points in uh, in life that you have no choice but to uh, uh but to deal with it why well, if i could tell me i just just thought of uh, another film that as we were mentioning some films before where i could uh, where, where i would argue that among the uh um, among the baby boomer um, oriented uh, coming of age films uh-huh. and that's something that this always made me think of not so much coming of age but life turning point film because okay. it's the same uh, it's the same generation something like the big chill uh-huh. I could almost see these characters being those people where that's going to be your next uh, turning point in life mm. the first you went through uh, from from childhood to young adulthood and then later on the next one's going to be when you're moving into uh, into middle age, uh-huh. so this is I, I think it's it's a really really a, a central and important uh, uh, theme in in this film, just the life turning point and how you uh, how you react to it. Yeah, spot on observations, completely sympathetical with you on everything you said. And if I could just kind of branch off and suggest some themes uh, as offshoots of that or in relation to that. Of course, the big one to me is what we talked about earlier as a theme, uh, the end of innocence, right? Because this time period is carefully chosen, signifying the conclusion of a simpler, a safer, a more innocent age, the golden period of the 50s, as it was uh, you know, looked back upon by many people, just before the British invasion changed pop music forever and before Kennedy was assassinated before the U.S. enters into the Vietnam War and prior to political and cultural turbulence that takes over, right, in, in the mid to late 60s. 
That postscript epilogue, it adds this somber tone to all that we've seen prior. We're told that Terry dies in Vietnam, that John is killed, as you said, by a drunk driver two years later, that Steve never leaves Modesto. Only Kurt makes it out of his hometown, living, as the postscript says, as a writer in Canada. And that suggests that perhaps he chose that country to escape the draft. Mm -hmm. Richard Roper, the critic, he wrote this. He said that 1962 was considered by many to be the, quote, spiritual end of the 1950s. In that same vein, the film's release in 1973 coincides with the spiritual end of the 1960s. The period piece setting and the timing of the release were just perfect. So much had transpired in our world at the relatively short 11-year span between the time when the story is set and the release of the film seems vast. You touched on this earlier, that brief 11-year span. Monumental things change between 62 and 73, the release of the film. Another major one to me that rises to the surface, Barna, is ambition versus acquiescence, or maybe put another way, growth versus stagnation. And you were talking about this a little bit a moment ago, because Kurt is the only major player, as we said, who departs his hometown. And tellingly, he's also the sole character who finds and receives wisdom from Wolfman Jack, who's kind of this Wizard of Oz-like sage who tells Kurt... Quote, it's a great, big, beautiful world out there, unquote. His friend John, on the other hand, he serves as maybe this cautionary tale dramatis personae. This character, this young man who's living on past glories four years after graduation. He, he, you know, he knows he's fallible. He's not having much luck in the ladies department. It seems like his glory years have passed him by. And here I want to uh, share something that Tarantino uh, further said, and that this was about Kurt uh, in relation to this point. He said that Kurt's not really questioning going to college. He's questioning the idea of leaving all the people he's ever known. But even more than the humans he leaves behind, Kurt's questioning leaving the rituals of community that the young people of Modesto partake in. He's the only one who realizes how temporary these rituals are. Kurt knows if he gets on that airplane tomorrow morning, everything that the film so nostalgically celebrates, well, he can kiss that all goodbye. The town and the life he leaves won't be the town and the life he returns to. If he even does return, which in all likelihood he won't, Kurt seems to know once he leaves, he's not coming back. Kurt knows the boy who exists today will no longer exist even two years from now. That's why he's contemplating staying too long at the party. Personally, I think Kurt always knew he was going to get on that airplane, Tarantino said. He just wanted it to be his idea and not some preordained destiny. His wandering around all over town all night was just Kurt's way of saying goodbye. Again, great stuff there from Tarantino analyzing that character. So yeah, this this thought of growth versus stagnation. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He, 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 put the, he put his finger right on it. That Rewatching it, uh, you, you, you do get that sense that, yeah, he's probably going to be uh, going to be leaving. We find out he's a, uh, he's a writer. Uh, so he's a, he's a thinker. He's a man who wants to go and explore the world, wants right. to uh, uh, express himself. That I, I, I can't see him you know, staying behind and stagnating and hanging out with Milner or, or the pharaohs. That no. it's, 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 uh, in a way, I think it's his way of saying goodbye to them, but also also being reminded that he he, he he needs to he's better than this in a way he's, 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 he's better than this community he's capable of more absolutely so another subtext that kind of rises to the surface for me is 
Looking back on the story, it's so interesting that so many people are paired together who would be like opposites. You know, opposites attract, I guess, is the theme I'm going for here. Or strange bedfellows, if you will, because each of the main characters or their partners, they're pushed out of their comfort zone. They're forced or in some cases coerced to pair up with someone unexpected or someone opposite to their nature, usually with positive results. Case in point, you've got John, who's obliged to escort this much younger Carol around in his Ford Deuce Coupe. But in the end, he doesn't really detest her company. He gives her a little, you know, innocent smooch on the on the cheek and they part ways. But it's not all torture in the end for him. Kurt, he's trapped to spend the evening with a street gang, the Pharaohs. But he's ultimately accepted into their ranks, which he probably didn't think that was going to happen. He thought it was going to be a lot worse than that. And he has a lot of fun along the way. Candy agrees to cruise with Terry. And despite his obviously embarrassing exploits, she indicates a willingness to date him again, which is unexpected. Lori breaks up with Steve and she ends up driving away with the bad boy, Falfa. Mm -hmm. And Steve is tempted briefly by a car hop friend, but the pair eventually reconcile. So I think there's some evidence here that the opposites attract or strange bedfellows kind of phenomenon is going on. Mm-hmm, sure. sure. Yeah, the, the, the Lori and Steve situation, that's that's a little, a little rockier there because she crashes in the car with Bob Falfa. Yeah. And then um and, and then when she when she comes out and 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 reconciles with Steve, that that's what keeps Steve back in the uh, in the town though. So that's it's a little, little, little more complex. Yeah, I think because everybody else turns out for, for for the better. Everybody enjoys the mismatched company throughout the uh, throughout the film. Yeah, the two of them they're they're a little little shaky. I think even in the future. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Cindy Williams said in an interview that she thinks what her character does to Steve is is terrible. Like she guilts him into staying and perhaps you know compromising on his dreams of not only going to college but maybe bigger better things. I guess there's different ways to look at it. She's being honest with him. Please don't leave me. You know, I love you, that kind of a thing. And, you know, how can you criticize that? But, yeah, it is a little bit different from some of the other pair-ups, as you put it. So I agree. A couple other themes. An obvious one is the pervasive influence of pop culture and and also contemporary technology on our generation. Because American graffiti's adolescents, the teenagers, they live their lives around cars, around cruising, around radio and rock and roll and fast food. So the movie reminds us, Barna, of how the suburbs burgeoned in post-war America, right? With the building of, uh, you know, mass highways and the proliferation of automobiles. And and also it reminds us how dominant pop culture became geared around teenagers and their interests. Roger Ebert said that American Graffiti is not only a great movie, but a brilliant work of historical fiction. No sociological treatise could duplicate the movie's success in remembering exactly how it was to be alive at that cultural instant. So, you know, the pervasive influence of pop culture, contemporary technology, this movie serving as that important artifact, uh, I think, is a relevant point. Mm-hmm, sure, sure. And with the uh, uh, the damage of the cars uh, throughout and how the whole story is set in cars, is it's, it's a thing that um, for part of coming of age from childhood into uh, uh, into young adulthood, or even as you're going through your through your teens, is your search for freedom. Uh, that cars, when we're talking about the American cult car culture, uh-huh. that we're saying that really the that's that's the car is what makes it uh, uh, makes it possible. Oh, sure. And uh, that's why for, for for generations you we want you had the teenagers who couldn't wait uh to get into that first car and it's really uh uh, this film really uh lets you appreciate how especially for this generation that was so important 
completely. All right, one final message I ruminated on and and revisiting American Graffiti, and that is the elusive search for the white whale, (laughs) the Moby Dick kind of aspect here. And in this case, it's a T-bird driving blonde whom Kurt pursues over most of the runtime, fueling his carpe diem passion and, and serving as a motivating muse but always remaining out of reach, right? So, like, he doesn't get the girl in the end. They don't have some whirlwind fling romance or long-lasting relationship. She is elusive, and it's probably for the best because it allows Kurt to get out and become the man that we assume he does. But nevertheless, for at least one night, this vision in white in a T-bird is fueling his imagination. Right. I always, I always found uh, her character fascinating, too, and that uh, she's, she, like you said, the white whale, the, uh, this, this unattainable uh, goal that he's looking for. He's looking for something beyond uh, the, uh, the everyday uh, material things around him. Like, like there are other girls who could pick up, that, but there's something ethereal about her. As I understand, there, there, there was a, a deleted scene uh, that was originally shot. We're in the beginning. It was uh, supposed to suggest that she's driving through a drive and, and and then she she vanishes like like she's not real, um, but it's all a figment of his ima- imagination. Oh, wow, I didn't even know that. Um, that I think would have been a major mistake. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. But it's- it's also a kind of the coincidence. Uh-huh. It's kind of, kind of weird. Like when he takes off in the plane and he looks out the window, he happens to see the uh, the T bird driving below. That's that's just a little stretch. If she is an actual flesh and blood person, not just a, a fantasy in his head. This is the fiftieth birthday of American Graffiti, and birthdays are a time for giving presents. Only it's the fans who continue to receive the gifts when a beloved film marks a milestone year. So, Barna, what is American Graffiti's greatest gift to viewers? Well, one of them, uh, we mentioned already the cast, right? The incredible careers that come out of this uh, from major A-list like Harrison Ford and Ron Howard Mm. and all the way down to the mysterious blonde and the T-bird, Suzanne Somers, who then career on tv and in uh and three scumpany and uh, was it step by step another uh, another show that she did in the 90s let's not forget the infomercials uh, with the exercise equipment yeah, yeah, yeah the time master <laughs> infomercials <laughs> so yeah you, you have uh you have careers that come out of this um and then I would you know, again go in and 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 point to how this leads to uh to star wars uh which then star wars is really going to uh push Hollywood into the uh, into the new blockbuster era where we're still living today and uh, I think it was Richard Roper right that you uh, that you quoted mm-hmm. who said that uh, that uh, the subject of the film in 1962 was about the end of an era and then the movie itself in in uh, in 73 is now the uh, is the coming end of the era in filmmaking now, this is uh, this is a suggestion suggesting that the very edgy the uh, the very rebellious uh, approach to film filmmaking is on its way out. Lucas learned his lesson with THX. He does something much more traditional, something that makes you feel good, Then, and he makes a lot of money off of it. Then Star Wars is going to uh, make you feel even better. If it's a welcome gift, uh, in, 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 a, in a way, I would say that's a, a major gift uh, that he would that we can uh, thank for, uh, for this film, too. Yeah, I can get down with that. That works for me as a gift as well. For my part, okay, I wasn't a teenager alive in 1962, and I can't claim any authentic wistfulness for that bygone era, right? But while I submit to being in the thrall of movie magic here, 
I can't help but feel nostalgic for what had to be, for many anyway, a a less complicated, a a less stressful age. A time when the joys of riding around in cars and tuning into the radio, hanging with friends, you know, minus any gadgets, minus any social media, and and hoofing it at the the school dance. These were all popular pastimes for young people. And and hearing that vintage music in particular, all-time classics by Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Bill Haley and the Comets, the Beach Boys... It makes me ponder how resonant and powerful those songs must have been in their original era. So for me, American Graffiti's greatest gift, it continues to be its power to transport me and us to a simpler time when 21st century stress didn't exist. Now, I'm not naive here. (laughs) I realize that every period and generation has its pros and cons. We talked a bit about this in terms of the rose-colored glasses aspect of American graffiti. Now, if you were from an ethnic minority, if you were female in 1962, it probably wasn't such a golden age. And teenagers 60 years ago, they certainly faced their own unique sets of challenges, I'm sure. Yet as subjective and myopic as this retro vision of a departed culture may be, I think American Graffiti allows us to live vicariously through some captivating characters. Characters who engage in downright fun adventures, escapades, and who experience epiphanies, both large and small, while also revisiting you know, that emotional urgency, the delicious self-indulgence and motivating angst of our own adolescences, which are long past. As far as time capsules go, when swallowed correctly, this one remains fairly potent. So for me, that's the greatest gift. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, Barna, are there any current or forthcoming projects, events, books, or appearances that our audiences would like to know about? Oh gosh, we'll I have a, a couple of things in the uh, in the works, still in the uh, in the writing stages. Okay. That aside from uh, from analyzing other people's art, I like to do my own as well. So I'm working on a sequel, hoping to uh, finish it up in the next two months or so, uh, to uh, one of my novels, a murder mystery novel. For murder mystery fans, uh, check out my my previous one. It's called Fatal Pose, and I'm working on its sequel. And I'm thinking of also doing an updating of a, uh, of, a of one of my film books about the history of conspiracy theory films uh, to go and add uh, more material, uh, more films since the, uh, the time that book came out. Very cool. Wow, you've got a lot going on there. It's always a treat to talk to you, Barna, and I'll be talking again in just a couple hours for another Cineverse meeting. But we're so glad you've made this return trip to Cineversary. Thanks again for your time and opinions. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was a lot, a lot of fun. A lot of fun there catching up with Mr. Donovan and delving deeper into the masterwork of nostalgia that is American Graffiti. Appreciate it, Barna. Oh, by the way, Barna is a regular member of my Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets every week to discuss a different movie. So if you value his insights and opinions, check out some of the recordings of our group discussions that I post at cineversegroup.com. Time once again for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a film, book, TV program, website, podcast, or event that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you. For September, I thought I'd give some shout-outs to other podcasts that also spotlight classic movies and some timeless cinematic treasures of the past. So here's a quick roundup of some acclaimed and recommended shows you might want to check out. First up, give a listen to The Next Picture Show. This is a bi-weekly roundtable by the former editorial team of The Dissolve. They examine how classic films inspire and inform modern movies. Episodes take a deep dive into a classic film and its legacy in the first half, 
And then they compare and contrast that movie with a modern successor in the second half. It's hosted and produced by Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Scott Tobias. Then there's The Cinephiles. Now that is spelled C-I-N-E with a hyphen, files, F-I-L-E-S. Here, hosts Steve Morris and John Rocha take a deep dive on a different movie every week with episodes that can sometimes go two hours or longer. So if you like really deep dives, this is the show for you. So, for example, most recently they did a two-episode tribute to The Night of the Hunter, a two-parter on Mary Poppins, a tribute to William Friedkin and the French Connection, back-to-back episodes on The Great Escape, a three-parter on The Social Network, a Pulp Fiction revisit, And the list goes on and on and on. Pretty good variety from these hosts. Then there's the classic movie review. This is hosted by John Corneliuson, who gives his own special spin on classic films with his archaeological background. John connects historic, cinematic, genealogical, and current facts to add a dimension to his reviews that will increase your enjoyment of different classic movies. Talk Classic to Me is a classic film podcast and movie club where the host and classic film enthusiast Sarah Greenfield talks about cherished works and other forms of old-fashioned media that strike her fancy as well with her entertaining friends. Lastly, here's an endorsement for Replay Value. This is a cinema podcast where brothers Phil and Warren deep dive into the films we all love to watch over and over again. Focusing on movies that are at least five years old, they break down how these classics have stood the test of time and they have new episodes every other Tuesday. So there you go. There's a handful of other podcasts absolutely worth checking out. Did you know that Cineversary has its own website? That's right. We actually now have a vanity URL that's easy to remember, which will take you to a freshly designed portal where you can quickly access the latest episode of your favorite podcast, as well as all of our previous installments. Now it's a lot easier to spread the good word about our show to your friends and family. You simply tell them to visit Cineversary.com. Pretty simple, right? That's Cineversary.com. We also have a custom email address just for you. Now, if you ever want to share feedback on our show or offer suggestions for future installments, or maybe you just have a question about Cineversary, send it to us at Cineversarypodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can really help our show grow by spreading the good word about the Cineversary show to your peeps. Even better, please leave a positive online review and rating, which significantly helps us to get discovered by new listeners. So if you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, some of these other services, simply search for the Cineversary page, look for a link that says something like ratings or reviews, click that link, and leave a review and or rating. While you're at it, take a moment to like us on Facebook. We also have a presence on Twitter. Our handle is at CineversaryPod, where you can easily tweet or follow us. And if you want to go an extra step in your support of our show and help keep us ad-free, please consider making a monetary donation to the Cineversary Podcast by visiting tinyurl.com slash donatecineversary. We really appreciate your support. Lastly, have you checked out my Cineverse Group website? Yeah, it's easy to get confused by these similar-sounding names. Cineversary, Cineverse, Tomato, Tomato... But Cineverse is actually the name of my private film discussion group I founded back in 2005 that continues to meet weekly on Zoom. Every week, the Cineverse group watches, researches, and discusses a different movie, and I create a summary write-up, call it a mini-essay if you will, on that movie that gets posted to the Cineverse group blog. So if you want to enjoy reading in-depth content that examines different discussion-worthy motion pictures, including classic Hollywood films, independent features, foreign masterworks, modern movies, and silent era standouts, 
then visit cineversegroup.com, simply spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group.com. Fun fact, every posted article on cineversegroup.com includes a link to a recording of our group discussion of that particular film, with me leading the conversation as moderator. So if you like what I'm doing on the Cineversary podcast, you might also want to give a listen to some of our Cineverse Group recordings, which are podcasts of a different sort. Again, head over to cineversegroup.com where you can check out some interesting text and audio content on a variety of films, not necessarily celebrating a milestone anniversary. Shh. Listen. Do you hear that? It's the sound of scares filling the air. We enter Halloween season next month, which makes October the ideal time to celebrate the granddaddy of modern shock horror. Yep, our next episode will mark the 50th anniversary of arguably the scariest film ever made, The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin, who recently passed. Lots of thrills, chills, and an in-depth discussion in store for you next time around, so come on back if your nerves can stand it. Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. Because, like early rock and roll, Terry the Toad's cruising prowess, and John Milner's hot rod, they're not getting older, they're getting better. Thanks for giving us a listen. Listen.